Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to today's New Books in Education. My name is Peng Fei Zhao, one of the hosts for New Books Network. Today, I will be talking with Aaron Kunz about his book, The Responsible Methodologist, Inquiry, Truth-Telling, and Social Justice. Aaron Kunz is a professor, research methodologist, and department chair at the University of Alabama. In this award-winning book, Aaron casts a thought-provoking argument on the role of research methodologist, the meaning of truth, and a researcher's responsibility. He problematizes the conventional research practice and advocates for an activist approach to social and educational research. In what follows, you will hear my conversation with Aaron Kunz on his book and his intellectual journey. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, let's start with a brief introduction. Maybe you can just briefly introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. Um, my name is Aaron Kuntz. I am a uh, professor and department head of educational studies at the University of Alabama. Um, I teach uh, qualitative inquiry courses and philosophy of education courses, all primarily at the uh, doctoral level. Um, In terms of my background in in education, uh, I received my doctorate from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in education, but actually my master's degree is in English literature. Oh, Uh, wow. Cool. Yeah, and I, I, I will say that I draw on the skills that I developed, I think, of being a critical reader through mm-hmm. getting my master's. I draw on that all the time. So that really has sort of helped me, I think, in my work. Then how did you uh, shift from a English major to a major of education and then to become a research methodologist? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So when I when I was in my master's at Northeastern, um, I, I got really involved in, in philosophy. Um, and uh, I had a wonderful professor there named Herb Sussman, who um, kind of led me into Foucault and studying Foucault. Um, but I also got, I have to say, and it might have just been sort of my time and my age, um, I got a little disenchanted uh, with uh, English literature uh, generally and critical theory more specifically because it seemed kind of divorced from my life. Um, And so I I decided I took time off. I took uh, like about four or five years off between my master's and my my doctorate. Um, And while I was away um, and during that time, I really just – I went back to a small liberal arts college and I taught – uh, gender and queer theory for a while, and uh, drawing on my background in English lit, 
And I just really felt drawn to studying uh, education because I felt like that was a place where social change could really be affected. Um, and that led me to looking at programs that are kind of regionally based because I'm from Vermont, so I'm kind of a Northeast guy. Uh, and I, lo and behold, I found the, the program at UMass Amherst and it really worked out for me. So, so is that why, I mean, you talked about this divorce from, um, divorce of a theory from, um, your everyday life. Is that why later leads you to write this book about responsible methodologist? Yes. I think that's, that's insightful of you to pick that up. I, I, um, wrote the book, the responsible methodologist kind of because, um, I became a little irritated (laughs) with the field of methodology, um, I kept thinking to myself, I did not become a methodologist to be like a, a technical wizard <laughs> or to become I someone yeah. interested in procedurism. I wanted to get in there because I, you know, I'm very interested in working with people. I want to draw on um, my philosophy background. I just felt like it was its inquiry is such an important area, um, <clears throat> and I was looking at the field and I and I saw this methodological work that was so prescriptive and and really just focused on learning the method. Um, and it was really disappointing to me because I felt like there's got to be more. It's got to be uh, a different type of uh, uh, challenge for us. And so um, that led me to start thinking about, well, maybe are we actually becoming irresponsible methodological, methodologically speaking? Is it irresponsible just to train people how to do an inter- interview, for instance, without getting at the um, what I see are the larger order questions that are more ethically in, inscribed? Um, so I, that kind of led to this book where I thought, well, what does it mean then to be actually a responsible methodologist? And I I try to make the claim that it, it what it means is that we are ethically and politically engaged. So that means that we, I don't think that just learning um, procedure is enough. Right, and that's that's naturally leads um, the conversation to my next question, which is um, about the conventional role of a research methodologist, or maybe a qualitative research methodologist specifically. So I wonder, you know, our audience will be um, uh, may not necessarily be the experts in the field. So mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about a more conventional understanding of being a research methodologist. Yeah, this is important. You know, it it actually comes back to, it's that troubling question when people are like, well, what is it that you do? You know, you're at cocktail parties or whatever. And they're like, I don't even, you're a professor of of education, but what is it that you actually do? So I, you know, this is how I think about it. And when I do teach kind of the intro to qual, um, I want to sort of be clear that the procedure and the how to conduct an interview or a focus group and the how to's, those are important conversations to have. So I don't want to say that we need to exclude those, but rather that if you only have those, then that's when it becomes problematic. So, um, you know, when I, when I explain sort of what I do or the classes that I teach to fo- folks who aren't as familiar um, with what with a methodologist, I I say you know how I begin a class uh, in qual in our first level of qualitative research. Let's say um, by saying how do we know what we know, 
And people will say, well, you know, you, you, you study something or you observe something. And I, I say, okay, so if you observe it, then that's kind of like an empirical phenomenon. Um, and uh, we can talk about that in relation to the social sciences. Maybe you read something in a book. Okay, so now we're starting to, to talk about learning and education. Maybe because your parents told you so, right? Um, that's how you know something because my mom told me and my dad told me. Um, well, now we're starting to get into culture. Um, because those are, you know, kind of truths, if you will, that um, are coming down by via family or coming through um, uh, one's sort of relatives or uh, cultural knowledge. And I say that's what's really interesting is is how people um, the truths or the beliefs people have and pass on uh, that have achieved a level of common sense. Um, so then I say, if something is commonsensical to you, it's, if it just makes sense to you, how do you get somebody to reveal that in an interview? Because if it's just common sense, then they don't have to speak it, right? They just, they just know it. And I say, well, there's, there is where sort of um, cultural um, analyses meets procedure because we have to think about, you know, if I'm writing up an interview protocol, so I want to interview you, for instance, I need to figure out a way to get you to talk about things that you feel like you know inherently. Um, and that's a, a, that's a wonderful challenge. Um, but it brings with it more than just um, I need to code a transcript in these types of ways. It brings with it, well, why is it important to uh, ask you these specific questions? What does it mean? Um, and the way I relate it to education, because I am in a, in a college of education, is I say, you know, if you're in a classroom, let's say a K-12 classroom, for instance, um, and say you want to interview or talk to um, teachers about how they teach, um, how do you get beyond kind of their book knowledge, right? Their book knowledge would be something like, this is just what they learned in school, so they're repeating it to you, right? Effective teaching is thus and such. Um, I want to know, like, how did you decide to write something on the board and not something else? Like the that type of micro level. Um, because these are the types of knowledges that are impacting actual teaching practice. Um, and again, that gets to the level of, well, why is that important to know? Um, what do we want to do with that type of knowledge? Um, and the, what do we want to do with that type of knowledge? I think links to a type of, um, political participation. So these things are not education itself is, is a, is a, is a political entity. It's, it's reaches beyond the boundaries of the classroom. So, you know, I've kind of thrown a lot of stuff out there, but that's kind of what I do in, in an introductory class to get people hooked into why this is important to think through. Yeah, so if my understanding is correct, you directly led people to those philosophical questions in terms of those procedural issues. I mean, people may come into this class with the anticipation of the expectation of um, learning some of the procedurals, procedures of doing, say, interview or doing participant observation. And then you led them to probe questions like what is truth what is um meaning yeah yes absolutely and there is an ongoing 
debate, um, I will say just sort of like among folks who have a similar position as mine, as, you know, not just what do you teach, but what should come first. So if you look at the way a curriculum is set up, I'm not sure um, uh, what your experience might have been, but some institutions will set up a curriculum where they teach method first. That's the how to's. Those are the procedures, that type of thing. And then they teach the theory later in later classes. Others are switched. So they teach the theory first. This is how meaning is made. This is what tr- this is how different truths are articulated, and then they go to the uh, the more procedure, so that the one informs the other. I my tendency is to sort of mash them together. Um, is to in the classes that I teach or in the way that I think is to sort of zigzag between um, these large oriented questions of ethics and truth. Um, and philosophy and procedures of how to do an interview, how to run a focus group, how to do an observation, those types of things. Because I think it's more interesting for everyone involved to have those conversations together. Otherwise, they seem unnecessarily divorced. Uh, well, that's very interesting. But back to this book, but the book seems to be very theoretical. Um, it's uh, it's less procedural. Or it involves less of those empirical work. Yes. Um, it's more oriented toward a theoretical issue. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is my, the book is a conceptual and philosophical book. And I think I say, you know, right in the beginning, um, why do we need another book on methodology? It's kind of how I opened the book. Um, there are enough, my sense is there are enough texts out there on the procedure of method, the how-tos. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't, people don't need to hear from me about the how-tos. What I want to do is kind of disrupt that um, <clears throat> and to make a claim for um, a different type of methodological responsibility. Um, because I, the worry, again, to get back to sort of my worries that led me to, to, to write the book, my worry really was that ethics themselves were starting to become procedurized. And it was like a, um, uh, a, check, a check box that you could check off. Oh, yeah, this, this, this study is, is ethical. I can move on. And that might be through institutional review boards. It might be through all these different things um, that just sort of sign off on ethics. But ethics and philosophy itself need to be deliberated, they're deliberated on. They can't just be checked off and left. It's an ongoing process. So uh, when I teach and when um, others, I want to, if you um, leave my classroom, I want you to think, when I go out to do a study, ethical deliberations are ongoing. I don't leave them behind when I get um, institutional approval, let's say, to, um, to conduct the study. They're ongoing. Well, if they're ongoing, then... I need to ensure that students and myself included have the capacity to engage in those conversations with community partners, all of these that are ethically, you know, um, loaded, um, that you reason through these um, ethical issues in an ongoing basis. Um, and they can't be uh, procedurized because then it becomes way too linear. And um, it, and I think to a degree, you know, sort of dangerous. Yeah, and then you you also link this uh, tendency to be linear, to be procedural oriented to some larger social issues, like yeah, uh, what you talk about this um, neoliberalist governance. Yes. So how do you make that connection? 
Yeah, I think, you know, what I see, and this ties into sort of how education itself, I think, has developed in our sort of contemporary era. You know, uh, neoliberalism, uh, well, first of all, it's defined any number of ways. But one of the things that I start thinking through is uh, neoliberalism as governed by uh, hyper concerns of hyper efficiency and hyper individuality. So how do those play out? Well, hyper efficiency plays out by sort of saying you need to kind of do more with less, and I need to be able to tell you what I'm going to um, come out with in the end, what the product is going to be. And this results, I think, in very linear thinking that um, it you know uh, causal logic, kind of making if then statements. If I do this, then this happens, which means this will happen, and I can predict that this will be in the end, the outcome. Um, uh, it, that is very uh, interesting and, and tidy in sort of uh, um, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of the hard sciences where you want a predictive model about how some phenomena will happen. When you get to the social sciences, including education, uh, it's much more messy. It is not, it, you, we, we have to think in other than linear terms. And I think you get in, you, this gets in trouble. Uh, we get in trouble when we think about ed- education in linear terms, which is kind of like a deficit model of education. Uh, people don't have the knowledge they need, so we will give it to them. And that knowledge can be prescribed in first grade, second grade, third grade. And so by the time they get to fourth, they will know these things and be able to you know, do these types of tasks. Well, many teachers, I think, will tell you that um, students don't operate, don't always abide by those linear uh, prescriptions, right? That uh, they learn some things and then they unlearn some things and then they learn different things and it kind of becomes, it's much more messy. So, yeah, yeah, and I think, so I think uh, our our contemporary moment right now, uh, this sort of neoliberal, hyper-globalized, um, uh, model that we all sort of fall under uh, <clears throat> ends up being uh, and, and b- making people enamored of methodological procedure and mm-hmm. expertise uh, named in particular ways. Um, and I w- I keep wanting us to pull back to say no. Uh, we need to intervene differently in these uh, uh, in these situations. So if I hear you clear uh, correctly, I think you are trying to make the connection between neoliberalism and the conventional role of research methodologists. You are trying to say it's actually this uh, larger social structure, our social context that creates or uh, maybe gave rise to this particular type of research methodologies of practice. Yes, absolutely. And it happens in kind of macro and micro ways. And actually, I'm really interested in the subtle ways that it happens, right? So if you think of, um, for example, uh, it seems like a mundane example, but if you go to a party or a cocktail party or something and you meet people, one of the first questions they ask is, what do you do? Now, they don't mean in that situation and lots of other, this isn't, you know, lots of other people have made this observation before. So it might be sort of cliche by now, but I think it's nonetheless important. They don't actually mean like, how do you live your life? They mean, how are you economically productive? So such that some people will feel ashamed of what they quote unquote do because their, um, uh, their job is not, uh, you know, seen as, as especially interesting or they maybe are unemployed. Right. So, um, Right. Uh, 
it just is an interesting marker that one of the first things culturally that uh, um, folks have learned to ask others is, what is your job? Um, and tell me about what that entails, as though that were, you know, um, uh, it would give insight into a person's being. And I just wonder, like, how did that happen? Um, and it's not that other... Uh, that like in the liberal times or even in the Enlightenment era, that that question maybe wasn't asked. It's rather that in the neoliberal time, that question takes on um, extreme uh, weight of importance. And it, it links into this sort of economic dominance of values um, that ends up being uh, problematic. So I this is a, an example of me zigzagging between the micro issues and the macro issues. I see that as these sort of macro contexts of our times. And then the methodologist ends up saying, you know, it's easier to say in an elevator, well, I am a, you know, I'm a, I'm a phenomenologist, which means that I do interviews. Right. As opposed to sort of saying like, well, I'm a cultural critic and that means these types of things. Right. So this issue of naming be takes on increased importance. Well, yeah. And that's um, I mean, it sounds to me that kind of zigzagging is very important. I mean, it actually leads us to see the larger picture. It leads us to think out of the box and maybe also to do uh, the disciplinary reflection. And I think it's very important because like the field of qualitative inquiry has been so, it's relatively new. I mean, compared with more well-established fields such as anthropology and sociology, right. it's a new field. And uh, yeah. I don't know how much, how much disciplinary reflection has been conducted by people in the field. Yeah, this that's such an important point. I, you know, I often will say, um, uh, that my job, my, literally my job as a, you know, now a professor of qualitative inquiry or qualitative research did not exist, you know, relatively recently. This is a new phenomenon, this job. Um, and really, although there are other people that should, you know, be recognized by it, I say, um, you know, if not for someone like uh, Norman Denzen at the University of Illinois, who has fought, I think, um, uh, on many different levels to establish the field of, of inquiry and, and, and research methodology in qualitative terms. If not for his work, my job wouldn't exist. Um, you know, and you look at the work that he and others have done to, in many ways, establish a degree of, you know, of the discipline, kind of almost a canon that we can look back on. You know, now we have the handbook of qualitative research. We have journals dedicated to qualitative research, well, it's, whether it's qualitative inquiry or um, the um, uh, qualitative studies in education, those types of journals. Um, those, they're all in, you know, the history of education generally, they're very new. Um, and so we have this evolving field uh, that uh, it now ha has a history, but is still changing um, and uh, drawing from, you know, like like you're mentioning, sociology, anthropology, um, economics, all of these different areas. So it's really important. And this actually leads back again to your earlier question uh, about what led me to education. It's also inherently interdisciplinary. Methodological work is interdisciplinary because we need to pull from all these skills, um, whether it's skills of critical reading um, and the like, from all these different disciplines, which makes it all the more interesting from my perspective. Yeah, and 
And from this perspective, I, uh, from the perspective of disciplinary reflection, I really think the book has been making very important contribution to the field, and oh, has been, you. oh yeah, <laughs> has been pioneered in this.、Um, Disciplinary reflection, and also I think two other things I feel、um, uh, very important, very worth noticing about the book is your rejection of the logics of extraction and、yes. also the rejection of、uh, moral relativism. Yes. I mean, yeah. So I think the book really articulates well the idea of relationality from the perspective of post-structuralism and the、uh-huh. new materialism. So in what follows, I really would like us to cover this both. I mean the both the two critiques. But let's、uh-huh. start with this、um, rejection of rejection to、uh, the logic of extraction. So、sure. what is that? Yes. Give us some examples. Yeah, absolutely. So、um, I became interested in this because it seemed to me that often the role of the methodologist, what method did, what people were supposed to be skilled at in terms of methodology, was to take something out of context to sort of extract it, rip it from context, and understand it unto itself. So, if we use an example,、um, the, one of the examples I give in the book is the interview. So, if I、um, were to interview you. Um, here's how traditionally, in terms of conventional methodology, this is how it would work. A conventional method: I would、uh, come up with an interview protocol. I would write it up. These would be the questions I was going to ask you. I would、um, sit down with you, preferably in a very boring environment, right? Because we don't want distractions. <clears throat> and、yeah. I would, <laughs> I would <laughs> then、um, turn on a recorder of some type. And I would ask you the questions to which you would respond. Then I would、um, take、uh, the recording and I would produce a transcript out of it. So take the audio and and put it into written words.、Um, and then I would do something that、um, we love to to call coding. Um, where I would go through and come up with themes, let's say,、um, and everyone loves to do open, axial, and selective coding, which is kind of like a vestige of grounded theory,、um, where I, you know, I kind of explain it in some ways as the first thing you do is kind of like in American education when you're in ninth grade English class, you came up with themes from a Shakespearean play. Well, that's kind of what we do with initially with a, with a transcript. You read through, you come up with themes, then you. You compare those themes to one another. This is moving towards axial coding. So now we've we've kind of pulled themes out of the out of the transcript itself, and we've situated them side by side in order to understand them in relation. And then we select the codes that seem to have the most salience and the most meaning,、um, <clears throat> and then we put them back into whatever the paper is that we're writing, the manuscript that we're writing. Well, what you have there is. Is a series of extractions that move us away from the actual experience of the interview itself. Not to mention the experience that if I were interviewing you, that you were communicating to me, right? I we we had you putting your experience, you know, tell me about your life, that type of thing. If it's getting at a life history, let's say,、um, into words that are、um, recorded. Well, there's one level of extraction. It's pulled out of that. So then I go home with the recording. 
and I produce a transcript. Now it's in Word. So there's another level of extraction that we've moved another step away from the actual event of the interview itself. And then I, um, I'll use my words purposely here, I tear those that transcript up and create um, codes out of it. Well, now we're removed from the transcript again. Uh, and then I you know, go on. So it's again, it's not that that's inherently wrong or bad to do. It's that it's it's dangerous in, in particular ways. It makes possible select readings that we need of which we need to be suspicious. Um, it can be very helpful in some ways, but if we just do this again as as though it's just common sense to extract something from context, then we maybe have a problem with it. Now, philosophically, I'm uh, uh, interested in uh, notions of materialism, and and materialism, in in some ways, different materialist philosophers would say like this is a problem. You, you we keep extracting things out of the context, and then uh, we lose the context. So we need to go back and and understand things more a little bit more imminently um, in the in the moment of of the context. So what I what I write about in the book is that much of, of the methodological work that I see, much of the training that methodologists undergo is governed by a logic of extraction. And uh, we need to create possibilities for thinking according or working according to different logics. Um, because uh, it lends itself, it's, I'm suspicious of it because it lends itself to this methodological procedurism that I see in the academy right now um, and that I'm hopeful that we can disrupt. And again, I always say like, listen, it's, it's not that it's inherently wrong, but we need to be suspicious of it because everybody's doing it um, and we need to find alternative ways uh, of thinking through these things. Well, that's very interesting, and I look forward to hearing this alternative way. But like before we move to that alternative direction, I have this one more question about why this uh, logics of extraction is inherently related to uh, a moral, a sense of moral relativism, oh, a sense yes. of moral indifference. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the idea, it, it happens in, in uh, different ways. That last term that you use, that sort of moral indifference, I think is really impress important. Um, so what happens, I think, is when we move out of specific contexts, um, we no longer um, are as attentive to the ethical or moral practices of that context. And we become operating by or governed by more general um, or normative ethical claims uh, or moral claims. And it can happen, I think, in a couple of ways. So to get back to sort of the irritation that led me to write the book, I got um, frustrated because people didn't want to have conversations about ethics and, and morality that were... Um, uh, that were more than procedural. So it happens with folks who are very well-intentioned, who were maybe doing some sort of like liberatory, who are governed or interested in liberatory theory or, or even liberal philosophy. And, and it came to sort of like, you have your culture, I have my culture type thing. 
And that the role then of research was to simply describe what your cultural norms were. And then I would describe what mine were, and we would sort of wash our hands of it and move on. And I thought, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> um, it's not right, helpful yeah. in terms of like bringing people together or dealing with what I see are the more important issues of the day um, that require a relationship and and. and uh, it, it lends itself to sort of people going off into their own corners and sort of saying, well, that's just what you believe. And this is what I believe. Actually, what education should be doing, and then we who are methodologists in education, is bringing people and bringing thought into relation and trying to create new possibilities. And you can't do that with a moral relativism um, perspective because I'm not indifferent I'm not I um I don't want to pretend to be uh neutral um uh, wholly neutral because I don't think um pure neutrality exists. We all have a position. We we are led by our positions and historically when we when we think about how sort of the role the methodologist came to be, it was a really radical thing for folks to put what we now see as a positionality statement in their um, in their studies, right? In their articles or in their dissertations. And a positionality statement is kind of like, here's who I am in relation to this study. Well, mm -hmm. that can also lend itself to a, a moral relativism, which is to say, like, I'm just going to study whatever the issue is, but I'm not in that issue. And the example I use in the book is, um, uh, you know, if you are out there um, doing a study on um, bullying behavior and you witness a sixth grade class where one student is bullying another, the question is, do you have an ethical or a moral responsibility to intervene? Um, but do you? Do you I, have? Go yeah. ahead. I mean, I, I'm just uh, very intrigued by this question. Yeah. Yes. And so um, the logic of extraction would say you need to be, you need to observe and be indifferent and um, record because as soon as you intervene, you kind of taint the study, right? You, you, you are no longer just the researcher. <clears throat> So you, right, witness, yeah. you witness the bullying and let's push it even further. Let's say there are no other adults around. So all you do is record it, right? Well, I actually think that's irresponsible. You see, you see kids bullying one another. One should intervene, especially if it's a dangerous situation, right? And I'm exactly. not, I don't, yeah. yeah, I think we have a responsibility to. But if you operate on a logic of extraction, you think, well, I'm going to take this experience that happened between these kids. I'm going to extract it out of this context and do my own analysis. As soon as I intervene, it's going to, it's going to, you know, um, it will no longer be a, a study. It'll just be like an event, right? And I want to say, what has happened to us such that we think this can happen. And I'll give you another example that comes, I, I believe I have it in the book. It came from me personally. Um, I was on a dissertation committee uh, that was dealing with nursing education. And uh, there was a study that was being done on chronic pain management. Um, and the person who was um, uh, overseeing the study, or the person who was, um, that was the student that was the, writing the dissertation, became quite close to the participants because they were talking to uh, this person about chronic pain situations that are, you know, deep and um, uh, full of emotion and that type of thing. Um, well, um, the student um, got a call one day from one of the participants who said, I'm back in the hospital. My, I don't have any family. Would you please come visit me? I need a friend. Uh, 
And um, the student uh, dropped what the student was doing and went and spent time at the hospital. Well, when the student revealed that to the dissertation committee, one faculty member actually said, well, now you've You've, you've ruined the study. You're no longer objective. You're no longer neutral. How can we even um, believe your results? You're, you're, you're no longer impartial. Oh, wow. That's yes, a it, very serious um, critique. I mean, yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. And it, and it draws from this logic of extraction. You no longer can extract either yourself from the experience or the experience from what you know. And I realized at that moment and articulated this, like that is asking methodologists or asking researchers to lo no longer be human. Because the human thing, from my perspective, is to actually go to the hospital. The human thing, the ethical thing, is to intervene in the bullying situation. Um, and if, if we have procedurized our role as researchers such that we no longer can intervene, I think we've done a grave injustice to the role of, of the inquirer or the role of research. Um, and it, is, it, is to, it gets back to that idea of like, well, we just end up becoming divorced from reality and we might as well be replaced by cameras, right? That you just play the recording of the event or something like that or computers. No, we have an ethical obligation to intervene and, and that student and others should properly think, I think, think through the relations, but should dive into them rather than try to separate oneself from them. So this is very thought-provoking. I think you are actually um, making this uh, statement about this traditional type of research, which is kind of pushing us to, I mean, in some of these extreme cases, trying to push us to make the um, choice to choose between being being a human of uh, being humanitarian and being neutral being yes. uh, very objectivist yes yeah and i and um from my perspective, this is why I'm interested in kind of mundane. I mean, those those one would think and one would actually hope, I suppose, that they're kind of like you said, extreme examples. I think these types of things happen often in more micro situations and they'd seem nearly mundane. We just are conditioned to sort of not even think about them. And that's when I that's when I get really nervous, frankly, because you can get this can get conditioned out of us. We, we start to take on these ethical claims of objectivity and neutrality as a matter of course. So suddenly we think, right, on one hand, let's use a different example. It maybe makes sense for some folks that if you're studying a, uh, a school situation, it shouldn't be one where your children, let's say, are uh, enrolled. I've heard this before, right? Because then it's kind of like studying your backyard, right? Um, and uh, so you'll go find something else. And I keep pushing back on that to say like, well, shouldn't we not be studying anybody? Shouldn't we be working with community partners um, so that they're a part of the actual um, uh, research itself? Well, if that's the case, then we need to draw on the very community relations that we live every day um, and, and work uh, and, and have those work uh, with us. Um, it's not, again, it's not to say that uh, we that studying a distanced um, uh, environment or context is wrong. It's just that it has particular type of consequences. Um, so it, 
you know, I keep wanting to sort of push back when students, you know, will say, well, is it okay if I do a dis- my dissertation on um, an event or something happening in my school where they're teachers or whatever? I, I don't, Initially, I don't always say uh, no. You can't do this. You got to you got to do it someplace else. I say, well, let's think through the 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 consequences of your relations for good or for ill, um, and make an informed decision about it. Um, and again, I'm interested in working with communities. I'm not interested in studying them. Communities have been studied enough, right? Um, and that's that phrase "studied" um, sort of invokes that distancing that myth of being objective and neutral and that type of thing. So you're really trying to make this distinction between studying something and working ways. So can we say this approach of study, uh, working ways, working with the community, working with the people, um, a social group is an alternative approach you are trying to lead us to? Yes, and it, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's one that um, intentionally goes against a logic extraction, right? It's one that intentionally goes against thoughts of moral indifference. Um, and it's one that builds on a different type of relationality, one that doesn't ignore difference, but really tries to work through difference. And so, um, this is why I think this kind of conversation that we're having now, as we're oscillating back and forth between like, well, you this strategy and, you know, this uh, philosophy, this zigzag, again, between the micro and macro, between the procedures of method and the philosophy of method. This is why I think it's important to entangle them uh, together and and work through them rather than sort of saying, well, today we're just going to talk about method and, you know, next semester we're just going to talk about philosophy because it's a much more productive conversation to bring the two together. Right, exactly. And I totally uh, face you about this uh, zigzag thing again. And I feel yeah. this is one of the very important contribution that this book has made. And also this introduction of new theories and to think through this idea of relation- uh, relationality. Is that uh-huh. how you call yes. it? Yeah, relationality is very interesting. And you seem to uh, borrow some insights from um, some of the most recent um, theorists uh, in, um, in, in the tradition of neo-materialism. Um, neo and also yes. um, you, you use some Foucault's um, later thoughts. So would, like, yes. would you like to um, talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, So there's a difference um, kind of generally between kind of ideal theory and material or ideal philosophy and material philosophy. And um, not to get too much in the weeds of that, but, um, you know, the materialists come along and I'm very influenced by them. And I do put people like Foucault and Deleuze and uh, other folks who are using kind of like a neo-Marxist perspective in this materialist camp. Um, and uh, they they sort of upend the dialectical model, um, which happens in this way, like traditional, or I always say simplistic dialectics. Um, uh, take something uh, from Hegel and, and really say, okay, you have uh, even something as simple as thesis, antithesis and, and synthesis. What happens is you have two different, let's say, uh, ideas, 
and you see um, how you can merge them together. So difference kind of drops out. Um, and to speak about this in sort of very real terms, I think for um, uh, you know the listening audience, <laughs> if they're interested in that at all, is you can see this happen all the time in in the classroom. Um, when student, when uh, faculty, if you're thinking of a higher ed classroom um, in tertiary education, asks break students into groups, ask students to um, discuss whatever they're discussing, and report back the consensus of the group. Right? What are the general themes that everyone talked about in terms of consensus? Well, that actually comes out of a dialectical model because you're asking people to come together, they express their differences, and then they find the bridge that links them together and they report out the bridge. Right? Um, this is, again, a simplistic sort of you know, way of thinking about it. And some of my philosopher friends are really rolling their eyes right now, but this, it works for me and how I think it through. Yeah. But I, I mentioned this the other day to somebody and they were like, that was my whole graduate school experience was that faculty would raise an issue, ask a question, break us into groups, and then ask us to report the consensus. Well, yeah. What happened? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a very, very typical uh, class activity with we all do. Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that comes from this idea that um, consensus means something, and it's rare that someone will say, report out your dissensus, report where you disagreed, right? Right. Um, although it does happen, right? But um, the point being that when you report simply the consensus and the dissensus where you disagree falls out, then difference itself falls out. That's kind of like a simplistic dialectical model that the, you have different statements and you're going to merge them together and the differences among them um, uh, drop out and you're going to just represent sameness. And I, I also will submit that that's kind of how often coding works, right? You take different, oh, different yeah. codes right. yeah. and you merge them together and their differences fall out. What happens to their differences? Well, in a very real way, materialists come along and say, yeah, I want to look at those differences. I don't want to look at the merge. It's not as interesting. Right. Uh, and for some reason, um, the uh, sameness um, has kind of become normed. It's kind of like, again, it gets back to that idea of common sense. That's how one has been trained culturally. And then it becomes legitimated in, in educational institutions to sort of think, well, what happens if we switch and we start saying, well, I want to know what happens when we bring difference together, not to erase it, but to see what comes out of those differences. Um, and you can use it in the, um, you know, the model of, of the classroom experience that I just said, where the groups are kind of saying, here's where we disagreed and, here, and, and here's how, you know, here's what comes out of that disagreement. Um, it can come out of a different type of coding mechanism. But more philosophically, um, folks start to understand it as a dialogic model as opposed, as opposed to a dialectical model. Um, so in some ways, materialism links into that, that difference is productive rather than dif difference is reductive. So, so we start to understand difference itself as something that makes possible something else. Um, so I, I find that very interesting and, and important for education generally, but, you know, also for methodological work and then philosophically. So that gets back to this, there's this, um, well-worn uh, quote from Michel Foucault, who is somewhat a philosopher I study, that says something along the lines of, it's not that things are right or wrong, it's that they're dangerous, and they're dangerous in particular ways. 
So uh, what people often don't follow up on is the, the latter portion of the quote where he says, that means we always have something to do. So um, if you track or you try to understand in what ways are things dangerous, that is, what are the consequences of thinking in particular ways, of living in particular ways, of studying in particular ways, and consequences for good and for ill, things we're comfortable with and not comfortable with, it's another way of saying, how do these ways of thinking, living, etc., make possible select practices and um, constrain others, right? And that's thinking about things in a very productive manner. Um, so the new materialists or the neo-materialism um, that has really sort of taken off in the field of late kind of extends out of that tradition. I will say, and I think I make a point of this, so it's probably only a footnote or something in the book, um, there's nothing really that new about new materialism. Um, and you can understand that by a lot of the philosophers <laughs> they work with um, are kind of going back to someone like Spinoza, right? In the, the 16th century right. or whatever. Um, but also we have examples from indigenous methodologies um, that are pulling from a similar notion of relationality. So um, I think, you know, whether it's, post material. I don't know. People play with the names a little bit. I'm more interested in kind of like relational thinking um, that links to material, you know, conceptions of, of the material. So, so if I understand, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, all of these ideas, and I think they are very interesting. I'm trying to see by relationality, you are trying to make the connections between, for example, um, a particular way to extract things and the consequences of this extraction. Yes. So this is definitely one of the relation relationship you are looking at. And yes, I, yes, yeah. So and also you are looking at the relationship between, say, um, material. And the um, the ideas uh, that the material gave rise to. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And the the idea that with relationality um, comes increased responsibility. I don't get to set step outside. This is why that you know, the, in some ways, the logic of extraction affords one the opportunity to say, like, well, that's not really about me. I can step outside of it, so therefore, I'm not responsible for it. Um, but actually, if you think in terms of relation, in, in, in terms of relations differently, that you you are never external to the the relations that you're examining or that you're articulating, whatever it is that you're doing at the moment, you actually are more responsible for them. You have more of an you know sort of an ethical relation to them. So if we use use the example of our worlds right now, you one doesn't get to. Um, exclude oneself from what's happening right now around, you know, pick pick an issue. There's so many out there, unfortunately, in the world right now. Uh, one doesn't get to exclude oneself around from uh, discussions of nationalism in Germany versus nationalism in the United States versus issues of immigration. Right? You can't you can't say that's not about me because we are relationally bound 
within all of these different issues. And so that's, that's where that sort of philosophical stance gets you. Logic of extraction says, well, I can extract myself from that context and sort of understand it with a degree of indifference. Um, and I think that's really dangerous for those of us who are working in the academy because it, it grants itself this idea of the ivory tower, right, where I am separate from that which I study. So as a result, I have no ethical obligations to whatever I study. Uh, and I, I really reject that. Um, we, I really believe that the, the very relations we identify increase our responsibility to whatever the event is that we're um, uh, engaged with. Um, and so when I, this is why I want to talk about ethics and issues of um, uh, you know, truth with students and faculty colleagues and friends and everyone, because those, those questions become, or those issues become, you know, sort of um, separated out and, and only talked about in the abstract. And I think that's a real danger. Oh, now I really get you. And I think I understand better how this philosophic position leads us to a very strong statement about the responsibility of a research methodologist or a researcher in general. How, yeah. yeah, so how this idea of relationality really allows us to see the ethical issues or the ethical responsibilities that a researcher should take on. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. And yeah. then that seems naturally leads to some of the larger issues. Again, the zigzag thing. The, yes. Yeah. The larger issues uh, that you discuss in the um, probably the second half of the book about, you know, this um, citizenship and the role of a research, method, a research methodologist in a democratic society of the um, social justice issues. Yes, absolutely. And um, so I started thinking through, well, given this, if I, if, if I buy into what, what I just sort of articulated out, um, and I do, right, because this is how I believe, but what does it mean then to be a methodological citizen? What does it mean to be a you know uh, a, a responsible citizen? And it actually led myself led me um, and or actually intersected in some of Foucault's writings on this notion of parhesia um, or truth telling. Um, and this is another example of where you know what's so new about new materialism, right? So I'm I've been uh, people have called me a new materialist in the past um, in sort of what reference to me, um, but I, here I am studying Foucault. <laughs> Right, who's studying the ancient Greeks? Oh yeah, <laughs> so they so. kind of fold in on themselves, but um, um, yeah, absolutely. So I started thinking through. Well, maybe this creates a new or a different notion of of what it means to be an academic citizen or a methodological citizen. Um, if we start thinking in in, in these uh, differently relational models, um, and it led me to this idea of parhesia, which is translates kind of roughly as truth telling. And so it kind of uh, intersects with this notion of what is, why we should be talking about truth. And as an aside, people are going to listen to this and think that I'm just irritated all the time, but um, it, <laughs> it was motivated in some way. I got, I also got, I was frustrated also because people were no longer, were not as interested in talking about truth. 
um, which is, I think, a, a, or, or, uh, or truths, um, because it, they were, uh, it didn't align with, at the time, the sort of postmodern or post-structural move. And so some of my colleagues, I think I say in the book, I talk about it as kind of using linguistic gymnastics to never even have to utter the term truth, because it was kind of like a term that um, had been critiqued for so long. And I understand that, but I kept thinking, my philosophical training, I want to talk about truth. And I think that we have, we've got to keep interrogating this notion of truth and we can't just avoid it. So then what are, what does it mean to tell the truth is something I got interested in. And for Foucault's reading of the, uh, of Parhesia, um, to tell the truth is to inter intervene in the status quo. Um, you tell the truth because you, um, believe or see something that others do not see. And in that telling, as soon as you tell the truth, the sort of uh, what is normal can no longer really operate because the truth is a disruptive, it's a disruptive thing. So this is interesting to me because it ends up saying that truth, if someone's telling you something you already know, it's not a new truth, right? It's just something that you already know. It's not disruptive. It just kind of continues on. Um, so I started thinking through like, okay, well, well, um, if Foucault is raising it, that to actually to be an engaged citizen uh, in, and he's referencing the ancient Greeks because they're, they're obviously very interested in democracy. So to be engaged in, in, a, in a democratic sphere, one might tell the truth and it's a risky thing to tell the truth because it's disruptive. You no longer can operate in the way that you normally would have operated. And once that happens, um, you risk your very relation to the person to whom you are telling this truth. Um, it's kind of like saying you, once you tell the truth, you can't go back. You can't put the whatever, use the metaphor you want. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube or you can't you know, um, uh, put the genie back in the bottle. Um, and so it ends up being an act of citizenship that is very risky. Now, during the ancient Greece times, a prohegist would tell the truth to sort of the prince or to the king, let's say. And they could, you know, if it was rejected, it was a really risky thing because one could die as a result of it. So I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that you risk your very position when you, when you tell the truth as a prohegist. And I started thinking maybe that's the role of the, the methodologist that, that inquiry should be about truth telling and it's ethically um, engaged um, and it is uh, socially engaged and materially engaged. And maybe we, in the rush to learn procedure, we forget about telling truths and all we do is sort of tell things that we already know. Um, and that's something that I think uh, I want to, I keep returning to. What does it mean to tell the truth? What does it mean to be an ethical citizen? Um, well, it means that we need to, to understand our relations, where we are, and it means that we need to consistently intervene in those relations in it, with the understanding, right? Like we talked about before, that that intervention, that creation of difference is productive. It makes possible things that weren't there before. Um, and so I think that is a really important thing to me. You know, the subtitle of the book is Inquiry, Truth-Telling, and Social Justice, because I think we can't really have social change if we're not getting at this issue of, you know, citizenship and truth. Well, that is really um, 
makes a lot of sense to me. And from what you said just now, I just hear this very courageous voice about dare to tell, dare to、yes. speak up, and this、uh, very praxis or practice-oriented philosophy. Yes, absolutely, and that—that's actually another、um, link to sort of materialism, right? That you know that notion of praxis. I think you're right to sort of point that out because it gets to the tradition、right. yeah. um, that I keep pointing to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, oh, it's it's really、um, really interesting and really inspiring to talk with you, Aaron. And、uh, oh, yeah,、you. and I think we have already taken so much time from you today. So before we wrap up, I I really want to ask this,、um, you know, this last question that we usually ask to our authors, which is, "What is your current project?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am、uh, in the midst of writing another book.、Um, That I see as kind of like a sister book or a,、um, a sibling、oh. <laughs> to the book, the Responsible Methodologist,、um, and it's on. It gets it more. It goes more in depth to, to this notion of of relationality, and and looks at the notion of cartography.、Mm-hmm. Um, And the cart- cartography is obviously it's about creating maps, right? So, like what I just talked about in terms of investigating our own relations. Well, there's this idea that you could sort of map out your relations, and I love I love looking at old maps,、um, like the ones where if you see a map of somebody that you know wrote a long time ago or created a long time ago, and they didn't know. Where what was over the next ocean or whatever, and they would just draw like a serpent, or they would like it would. I I just think it's so interesting because that's someone who's right on the edge of their knowledge, and so I I'm writing about inquiry as cartography, and in and I'm also thinking more philosophically about the notion of virtue,、um, because virtue is very interesting to me because it's not about what. What you will do—that's kind of prescription, which would lead back to the sort of procedurized logic of extraction that we were talking about before. So, if virtue is not prescription, it's not about what you will do; it's about what you should do,、um, and that brings in ethics.、Um, and I'm really interested in having conversations that get at, okay, well, what are our ethical inclinations and what are our ethical obligations to? Being,、um, to use our terms before, kind of a citizen, a methodological citizen,、um, and so the 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 role of、uh, the inquirer as a cartographer, as someone who is mapping things out so that they can make possible something new, and in that making possible of something new, therein lies、um, virtuous practice. So that's you know that's that's really what I'm working on、uh, right now.、Uh, my latest kind of book project. Wow, that sounds fabulous. When、uh, when do you think you can get this book out? <laughs> <laughs> that's always the question. Well, yeah, maybe I shouldn't、um, ask. <laughs> no, no, it's good because you know, keep me honest. But、um, I actually the manuscript、um, is due to the publisher、um, in July,、uh, mid July. So I will hopefully, you know, I'm working through it. I've got the chapters. I've got seven chapters. I also go a little bit more. Um, uh, specifically into the、uh, to a, a specific notion of materialism,、um, 
uh, and and uh, I so a couple of chapters kind of set that up, and then I get to cartography. So, gosh, you know, cross fingers, toes, legs, everything, <laughs> because uh, my hope is that I'll send it in July to the publisher, and then it'll be um, that would mean that it would be out either in the winter, uh, this coming winter in 2018, or the spring of 19 is my guess. Well, that's cool, and then we look forward to having you again, maybe next year. Oh, absolutely! I would love that. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. So, thank you so much. Yeah, it's really pleasant to talk with you, and thanks so much for sharing with our audience your thoughts and your experience with this book. Oh, absolutely! And thanks to you for coming up with, for taking seriously these ideas and coming up with such wonderful questions. It's it's really nice. Oh, my pleasure. I I really enjoyed reading it. Thank、okay. you. Yeah. All right. Take care. Bye bye.